Amen. Let's pray together. God, we so are humbled, um, Lord, at your goodness, God, at the gifts that you have bestowed in freedom, both as a nation and freedom in Christ. God, we, uh, we pray now, God, that as we open your word, God, that you would speak to us. God, that you would be our teacher. Just as Ethan has reminded us that you are our worship leader, God, you are also our preacher. And God, we need to be taught the things of your word by you so that we would have ears to hear. And God, that we would have the power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, to live it out. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, uh, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Um, isn't it good to, to, uh, to sing songs? I mean, w- when you can take a song from 1876 and marry it with new lyrics from 2011. I mean, last week, 2011, because I was there uh, in Ethan's office when he was sort of working out those lyrics and, and sort of writing those. Um, and I don't mean to, to puff him up or anything like that, and he hates when I do this, but but it's, I, I think it's really good when we can take those two things and come together. We are taking our heritage, the things that we stand on, and then we are also bringing things from right now. And, and that, that heritage is strong. Amen? All right. Y'all awake? Y'all hearing y'all good? All right. Mark chapter 10. Um, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. I'll go ahead and tell you this morning that... Um, there's probably more in this text than I'm going to get through. I'm going to preach through as much of it as, as, uh, as time allows for us to, to, to get through. But um, I, I probably will not get through it all. But uh, uh, I, I hope to get through as much as we can. The sermon this morning is titled, Chasing Glory. Chasing Glory. Uh, I want to read the text and then we'll just walk through it together. Beginning in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, They began to be indignant at James and John. Then Jesus called them them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We come to this text and we, we, we see these two particular disciples, two of the twelve. 
audacious in their request, bold in their approach to Jesus. Come to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we want you to do. I mean, how, how bold and audacious can you get? Uh, as I thought about this, as I studied over this, I thought about some, some other audacious pursuits or chases, cha- chasing glory. Uh, anybody ever watched the Storm Chasers? Any ever, anybody ever been tempted to be a Storm Chaser? Now, I love sitting out. I love sitting out and watching storms, you know, but I don't know that I would say, let me drive into the heart of the tornado. You know, I just, you know, I don't know. I drove through. I took a group of teenagers one time uh, to the secret church uh, at Brook Hills and uh, drove through, I think, the eye of the tornado. Hail was beating on that 15-passenger van. I thought we were going to die, and, uh, and so did they. They were screaming. I don't know that I would ever want to do that. To me, it's a little crazy chasing this thing. But they chase it because this thing is glorious. They're chasing glory. This thing has their attention. It is powerful and awe-filled, and they want to get as close to it as they possibly can. We see this maybe maybe in a more uh, culturally or socially accepted form in college football. You say, now wait a minute, preacher, don't be talking about college football. It's right around the corner. I'm excited. I'm a college football fan. I'm a Tennessee fan. Grew up in 30 minutes outside of Knoxville, and I know right now some of you just tuned me out, but I grew up 30 minutes outside of Knoxville. Grew up going to the games with my dad, going to that stadium that would hold over 100,000 people, and still today I get the same experience when I walk into that, that stadium as I do when I go to the ocean. You walk in and it's just like, this thing's awesome, you know. I mean, it's, it's incredible to go and see this, and you ever watch some of these football fans? Just crazy. I mean, doing things, you know, beyond painting their bodies and, and all this sort of thing. I mean, some of them are, are shaving things into their, you know, chest hair and things like that. It's just, just crazy fanatical, okay? Why? Because there is something out there that, that is so awesome to them that they are chasing after this. We see this in, let me just meddle a little further. We see this with deer hunters. I'm not a hunter. For one reason. Getting up before daylight and tracking out through the woods does not sound fun to me. Sitting in a deer stand that I'm afraid I may fall out of, freezing, trying to be extremely quiet, waiting for this animal to come walking through the woods near me is not my idea of fun. But there are some that live for it. I've had people say to me, now, Pastor, I, I love the Lord and everything, but you know, it's deer season. You know? So, you know, to me, I mean, but there's this thing out there that is glorious and awesome. It's got all these points, you know, and it weighs this amount, and it's, you know, spreads this. I don't know. It's, it's awesome, and they chase after it. You ever watch this show on TV about, about these mothers of these child beauty pageants? Crazy! You know? I mean, just absolutely fanatical. Chasing after this thing. You know, five-year-old girls who are look well beyond the age that they are. You know, they should be riding bikes and falling down and scraping knees and playing tea party and all these things. And instead, moms are screaming at one another and screaming at their children because 
the talent. The talent has got to be spot on if you have a chance in this competition. Why? Because there is something in this that is glorious for them. And they chase after it. It is no different than what we see here with James and John. Coming to Jesus in a very bold, audacious way. Right after he has just for the third time told them, We are going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over. He will be beaten. He will be spit upon. He will be mocked. And he will be killed. But on the third day he will rise again. And after all of that, they still come saying, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we want you to do for us. Why? Because there is something out there that is glorious to them. And it is not the glory of God. It is the glory of self-promotion for them. Wanting to sit at the right hand or the left when Jesus enters His glory. In other words, whenever Jesus comes in as their, still in their minds, political Messiah, delivers Israel from Roman tyranny and sets up His rule and reign, they want to be at the right and the left of Jesus. I want to show you in this text today. I want to show you. I'm going to start. I've got four points. I don't know that I'll get to all four. Um, but I want to show you what this chasing glory looks like for many of us this side of heaven. Okay? First of all, I want to start off with depravity. We are all depraved. And this text shows it. Dave Harvey has written a book. Not, not Paul, but Dave Harvey has written a book that I would commend to you. This book is called Rescuing Ambition. I try to do this periodically, recommend books to you. I'm not sure that this is in our library yet, but we're working very hard at getting our library up, up and going. But uh, Rescuing Ambition by Dave Harvey. This is, listen to what Dave says. Dave said in his book, We are pursuers. We go after things we value. We love glory. We were created to look for it and to love it when we find it. The reality is, the sad part about this is, yes, we were created for this. We were created to look, at, to look for and pursue glory and to love it when we find it. But the, the, the problem is, we were originally designed to find it in God alone. God is glorious. But instead, we have far left God and the pursuit of His glory, oftentimes in the rearview mirror, and we are chasing hard after glory of our own, whatever it may be. I want to show you this in these, in these few verses. In verse 35, they say to him, we want you to do whatever we want you to do. Now, this ought to make you think about a child. Those of you who are parents, did you ever have your child come up to you and say, Daddy, promise me you'll say yes. Well, I don't know. What, what do you want me to say yes to? Daddy, just promise me that you'll say yes. You know, they never came and said, promise me you'll say no. You know, it was always, promise me you'll say yes. And that's what we see these two disciples here doing. Teacher, promise us you'll say yes. We want you to give us what we want. And the first part of this depravity that is evident for us here is that we oftentimes in our sinful, fallen, rebellious hearts want a blank check. We want carte blanche. We want 
Jesus just to do for us whatever we want. We want him to just go ahead and sign it. And Jesus will fill in the details. It shows the depravity. What, what we should be doing is saying, Jesus, you alone are glorious. You alone know what is glorious. And Jesus, let me go ahead and sign my name to that. And God, you fill in the details of my life. But instead, oftentimes we want a blank check. In verse 37, they said, Jesus says to him, notice his graciousness. He says in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? You know, if, this would have, if Jesus were like me, he might have looked at them and said, go away. You want me to do whatever you want me to do? Get out of my face. Go away. That might have been my response. But Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Graciousness. And then in verse 37, they say, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. This was, you have to understand a little bit about the times. The right hand seat and the left hand seat of the king was the most favorable, the most honored two positions in the kingdom. If you were sitting in that position, you were somebody important. You were VIP to the max. You were nothing short of, just short of the king. And here they say to Jesus, Jesus, grant us to sit at your right and your left. Why? They've just heard him say, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. They didn't pay attention to it. Yes, they had heard him say that on the third day he would rise again, but this is not what they were looking for. They were looking for him to be this political Messiah who would establish this earthly reign. And when they say to Jesus, Jesus, grant us to sit at your right and your left, they are on their way to Jerusalem. We are about to enter the very last week of the life of Jesus in Mark. We will spend the the rest of Mark looking at the last week. And they, in their minds, maybe are thinking, this may be our last shot. To ask for this. Not only do we want a blank check. Verse 37 shows us that we want glory without suffering. We want glory without suffering. They didn't didn't pay attention to. they They didn't think about the suffering. They didn't think about the flogging. They didn't think about the spitting. They didn't think about him dying or being delivered or handing over. They just said, Jesus, you know, we know you said all that. But never mind that, Jesus. We want to be on your right and your left. And they didn't say, Jesus, when you are flogged, let them flog us as well. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, we want the glory, never mind all the suffering. This is the depraved heart at work. We want the good seats. Not only that, but not only do we want a blank check, we want the glory without the suffering. But third here, we don't want anybody else to be as glorious as us. We don't want anybody else to be as glorified as we are. In verse 41, if you skip down to that, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. Now this would be, this would be redeemable and, and wonderful if they were saying, James and John, did you just hear what Jesus said? Stop trying to get glory for yourself. Jesus alone is glorious. If, if they were becoming indignant over that, kudos. Good job, Tim. They're not. What they're doing here is they're saying, what did I think of that? They beat me to it. I was going to ask for that. I wanted to be on the right. I wanted to be on the left. This is the same thing as when my kids come out. They have a rule and they say, you cannot call shotgun until you get out 
down the steps, onto the driveway. Then you call shotgun, and, and whoever calls it gets shotgun. You know, this is the same thing. When one of them comes out of the house, steps down onto the driveway and says, shotgun, oftentimes the other one will say, ah, I wanted shotgun. I wanted to sit in the front seat. I wanted that. I wanted to get it first. I remember doing the same thing when I was a kid. We would come home on the school bus. And I knew, 4 o'clock, 4 o'clock, when I got home, we got home at 3.50, at 4 o'clock, G.I. Joe was coming on. Okay? We had a rule similar to this when we would get off the school bus. You could not call the TV until you got off the school bus. But I would always stand up first in the aisle of the school bus, get to the door first so that I could step off. My feet would hit the ground first. And sometimes I would even step down, not move out of the door, turn around and look at my sister and say, I got the TV. And this is what they're doing here. They don't want anybody to be as glorious as them. I want it to be at the right. I want it to be at the left. They're indignant with James and John. Whether you're talking about Alexander the Great, who conquered most of the known world in his lifetime, or Julius Caesar, who cried upon reading all of Alexander the Great's accomplishments, saying, I've lived all these lives and I've done nothing I've done nothing compared to Alexander the Great. Or whether you're talking about Snooky and the situation. Or whether you're talking about Chad Ochocinco, who is now riding bulls and trying out for soccer teams and all sorts of other things because he wants to be in the spotlight. Whether you're talking about Alexander the Great or Ochocinco, we're all the same. We're depraved. We want to be in the position of glory. And it's not, it's not just for those who don't know Christ. Get this. Even those who do know Christ have had our sins forgiven. We have this creep up within us as well too, don't we? It still creeps up. We sometimes pretend and act like we have got it all together and we've moved on beyond that. But the reality is, I struggle with this every single day having to say, God, take me off the throne. God, get me out of the way. God, don't let me try to rob any glory from you. We're all depraved, all the same. Have you ever known anybody that when you would tell a story, they always had a better story? Doesn't that just drive you crazy? You ever found yourself being that person? I have. It points to the fact that there's only been one who has has lived a perfectly obedient life. His name is Jesus. And we who come by faith, repenting of our sins, trusting Christ alone to save us, we are dependent on not only at the beginning to get in, but we are dependent all the way through. We are dependent on the righteousness of Christ alone because we are depraved. Secondly, I want you to see this is um, in this text, not only are we depraved, but we are also deluded. And, and this, is a, this is a deadly, ugly combination when you are depraved and deluded. You're not as good as you think you are, but you think you are. You know, that's, that's bad. 
And that's what we see here in verse 38. They, they say uh, to Jesus, he says to them, Can you drink the cup that I am to drink? Can you be baptized with my baptism? And they say, We can do that. I mean, it is the height of stupidity. It's the, it's, it's the height of delusion. Sometimes we think we know what we are asking for. Jesus says to them, you have no idea what you're asking for. You don't know what you're asking for. You don't know. Sometimes we think we do. Sometimes we'll argue that we do, but we, more times than not, don't know. We often think that we know what's best, but if we had just a little more information, we would never ask for what we were asking for. Isn't that true? You ever found yourself in that situation? I, I want it. I want it. I, I, I've got to have this. But then you get another piece of information and you go, whoa, if I get this based on this, this is not a good situation. It's, I, I tried to think of an example on this and, and or an illustration, and I couldn't help but to go back to, I'm an Andy Griffith fan. You know, I know I'm, I'm of a different generation. I shouldn't be an Andy Griffith fan, but I still think Andy Griffith is one of the best shows ever made. Okay? And uh, there's an there's a episode where Andy and Barney are at a French restaurant. You know, and Andy pulls the wise move. And the, the menu's in French. Andy can't read French. So Andy says, he, looks, he takes the menu and he's looking at it and he says, I have no idea. So he calls the waiter over and he says, you got a good steak. And he says, yes, sir. You know, and, he, and he writes it down. And he, and, he, and he puts it in the order. Barney's too prideful. Barney is not going to let the waiter think that he doesn't know what he's doing. So Barney, rather than saying, have you got a good steak? I'll, I'll have what he's having. Instead, no, Barney says, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll have that. And lo and behold, when his meal comes, he has a plate full of snails because he, oh, he pointed to escargot. And Andy left well-fed. And Barney had to stop somewhere else after the fact. If we had just a little more information, we probably would not choose what we often sometimes choose. The danger is that often it's not a question of what's for dinner, but it's a larger, more life-altering question. It's a more serious situation than what's for dinner. We need to admit that we are not God. We don't have all of the information. And even if we did, we still probably wouldn't choose what He would choose for us. Because again, remember, we are depraved. We are sinful creatures who have not yet been fully conformed to the image of Christ. We need to trust that He is the all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving, all-good God. Amen? We often not only have no idea of what we are really asking for, but then also we oftentimes overestimate our own abilities. We think we can handle it. That's what they said. Yeah, we, we can do that. And they sound like Bob the Builder. Yes, we can. You know, we, we got this. We can drink that cup. We can be baptized with that baptism. So what is Jesus talking about here when he says to them, can you drink the cup that I am to drink? Well, if you think back through your, your biblical imagery and you go back to the Old Testament, certainly there were times when cup had a, a sense of blessing. You think of Psalm 23. 
My cup overflows. Well, who doesn't want that? Is that what Jesus is talking about here? When Jesus says to them, can you drink the cup that I am to drink? Are they assuming that it's the cup that's overflowing with blessings from God? Well, if they paid attention at all, they know it's not. He's told them now three times. No, the reality is that Jesus here is not talking of of a cup of blessing. Because more times than blessings, the Old Testament refers to this cup in a way that brings suffering. It's a cup filled with wrath. This is the cup that Jesus has in mind here. It's spoken of in Psalm chapter 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That word dregs is, is, it literally means that when you get to the bottom, that there's the sediment and there's all the grainy stuff in the bottom, they're not going to leave even that in the cup. They're going to take even that. You ever had coffee that some of the grounds got through in it? It's not pouring the cup out. It's drinking it anyway. Okay? And that's what he's talking about here. The wicked of the earth are going to drink down to the dregs this cup of the wrath of God. Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. This is the cup that Jesus had in mind when he prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you, Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is not a good cup. This is the cup of the wrath of God that Jesus was sent to drink. And when Jesus here says, can you drink the cup that I am to drink? They know full well what he's talking about. And still they say, yes, we can. Could they be baptized with the baptism with which Jesus was to be baptized. Hear the image. We know baptism as a good thing. We see baptism. We see people come through the baptismal waters, and it is, it is harmless. It's actually celebrated. It's a good thing when someone comes to know Christ as Savior and displays that for the watching body and the watching world that they are identifying with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that's not the way Jesus uses it here. Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? Not the one where the dove descended from heaven and the voice from heaven spoke, this is my son who I'm well pleased. No, the baptism he's referring to is the baptism that is to come. The one where he will be totally immersed in the wrath of God for the sins of the world. Could they be totally immersed in this type of immediate suffering in the same way that a person is totally immersed by the water of baptism? According to them, yes, yes, we can. They wanted instant gratification. They wanted easy glory. But Jesus was going to promise them the delayed gratification of future glory that would come through intense suffering. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about this or, or, um, or viewed it in this way, but suffering for us is a good thing. It doesn't feel good, and I don't expect you in the midst of it to say, praise God for the suffering. But the reality is we can say that because our suffering is what makes us like Christ. We see here that they are not only depraved in their sinful hearts and their sinful existence, but they are also deluded. And we go to this third point, and that's where I'll end today, this third point. They are depraved, they are deluded, they think they know what's best, they think they can pull it off. Jesus here then pulls them to him and he points to them. Before he pulls the rest of the guys in, he says to them, this cup is the cup that I am to drink. We see here this distribution of a sovereign, holy, loving Father. There was a cup that was meant for Jesus to drink. There was a baptism that was meant for him to be baptized with. Jesus reveals this in John 18, 11 when he says this. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? There's this sense that Jesus knows that what he is headed toward, this cup and this baptism, is exactly what God has sent him there for. Even though Jesus prayed for the Father to remove the cup, when he uttered the words, Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done, he had settled in his mind that he was sent to earth to drink this cup, to be baptized with this baptism. Verse 45, he, he confirms it again. Verse 45 of this text, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And then the last line, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You've got to understand that the cup that Jesus drank, the baptism that he was baptized with, was not just from this sadistic Heavenly Father that wanted to cause Jesus to suffer as much as he possibly could. But this came from a loving Father who when we were lost in our sin, dead in our sin, headed for the cup of wrath for all of the wicked of the earth, in order to satisfy his own righteousness and satisfy his own, his own wrath, sent his own son, who was the object of worship throughout all of heaven, sent his own son to take on human flesh, to be born as a baby, to grow up as a child, to go through being a teenager, to go into young adulthood, to go up to the age of 33 and live a completely perfect, obedient life. To live the, a righteous life that you and I never lived. We are guilty because we are in Adam. We're guilty of his sin, but we are also guilty of our own sin. We want to be the center of attention. We want to be the most glorious. We want what we want. We want the blank check. We think we are on the throne. We are not righteous. No, not one. But Jesus came and lived perfectly righteous. He obeyed completely. And even in that perfect obedience, he came to the end of those 33 years and he was arrested, 
He was tried. He was pronounced guilty by a human court. He was handed over to the Gentiles. The Romans then took him. They mocked him. They flogged him. They spit on him. And they crucified him. They crucified him. He suffered intensely in that human body. But more than the human suffering that was there, the one who knew no sin became sin for us. And he had the sins of humanity placed on him. And he had all the wrath, all the cup of the wrath of God for the sins of all those who would believe placed on him. He took the cup of the wrath of God, this one that is foaming and well mixed, and he drank it down to the dregs left nothing in the cup, cleaned out all of the sediment. And Romans 8, 1 says, for those who are in Christ, there is there no condemnation anymore. Because He has drank all of it. He has been totally engulfed, totally immersed in this baptism, suffering for the sins of the world. This was the cup that he was to drink. This is the baptism that he was to be baptized with. Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him. All we like sheep have gone astray. By his stripes we are healed. This was his cup. This was his baptism to ransom many, the Bible says here. Their cup. Jesus says to them, you will drink this cup. You will be baptized. But to the seat at the right hand and the left is not mine to give. It's only for those for whom it is prepared. And Jesus points them away from his cup that he was to drink and his baptism that he was to be baptized with, and then he points to them and he tells them they would also drink. That there was a cup for them and a baptism for them as well. And they would suffer as well. They would not be nailed to a cross. They would not be placed in a tomb. They would not be whipped. They would not have crown of thorns, but they would still drink a cup very similar. If you read through Acts chapter 12, James here, when Jesus says, you too will drink this cup, James was the first apostle that was martyred in the early church. When you go to John, and you read through in Revelation 1, John was, as an old man, exiled to an island. He was on Patmos, wrote the book of Revelation. Many say there's, there's um, extra-biblical literature that points to the fact that before he was exiled, he was he was plunged into a vat of boiling oil or boiling water and survived, and then he was exiled. When Jesus looks at them here and says, oh, you will, he doesn't say it in this derogatory, I'm better than you, let me exalt myself over you. He says, you will drink this cup and you will be baptized. He points to the fact that there is this baptism for them specifically for them there is this suffering that is coming for them 
And we can go down through the pages of history and we can go to men like Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, who was the bishop of Smyrna, who right before he was burned alive, burned at the stake, right before this, he was asked to recant. And this is what he said, 80 and 6 years I have served him and he has never done any injury to me. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And they lit the fire around him and he paid for it with his life. Another one, I I looked at church history and I just went kind of down the list. Another one, Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was an English reformer and the Archbishop of of Canterbury during the reign of Henry VIII, Edward VI, and then for a short time under Mary I. Thomas Cranmer had, uh, during this time, he had, under the rule of Mary I, she was trying to pull everything back away from uh, the Reformation. She was trying to pull everything back to the Roman Catholic Church and she had pressured him and he was under extreme pressure from others to recant and to pull back. And he wrote five different letters of recanting, pulling back, submitting to the government, submitting to the the Roman Catholic Church. He, He writes five of these. Four of these, he tore up. He would write it, tear it up, become convicted, tear it up. On the fifth one, he took it, he wrote it, and he signed his name to it, and he sent it in. He sent it in, and Mary I got it, and she said, I don't believe it is sincere, and she ordered him to be burned, burned alive. And right before he is burned alive, they got him there. and He wrote this, and then he went to his death. This is what he wrote. He said, I have sinned in that I signed with my hand what I did not believe in my heart. When the flames are lit, this hand shall be the first to burn. And when they lit those fires around him, Thomas Cranmer leaned over and he took that hand that signed what his heart did not believe and he plunged it into the fire and he held it there until it was just a charred nub. And they say that the only time he moved outside of that was to take his left hand and wipe the sweat from his brow. Thomas Cranmer, while he signed with his hand what his heart didn't believe, went to his death to drink the cup that was prepared for him. Jim Elliot, Jim Elliot, his most famous, his most famous quote is, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot in 1956, was speared to death trying to reach the Wadoni people in Ecuador. He believed to the point where he would drink the cup that God had for him. We could go on and on and on with names like Wycliffe and Hus, largely responsible for you having a copy of God's Word in your hands today paid for it with their lives. We could go to men like Livingstone and Bonhoeffer and Latimer. We could go down through the ages, even to this very last week. People who around the globe are paying for following Christ with their lives. Why? Why would they do it? Why would they do it? Because And following Christ, they realize that He alone is the one who is to be pursued. He is the only one who is glorious. 
Jesus here says to them, it's not up to me to give those seats. It is up to God alone. It is, it is up to the Father alone is what here we see. Jesus here being God of very God, even to the very end, submitting himself to the will of the Father. God alone gives out the glory seats, and that's what we see in these men. Let me just end with a couple of questions. What if we lived our lives chasing only the glory of God? What if we lived for His applause alone? What if instead of pushing and clawing our way to the top, we left the exaltation of certain men and women up to His sovereign choosing? Dave Harvey, again, this book that I've recommended to you, says it this way. God doesn't oppose glory-seeking. In fact, He commends it. And what's more astounding, He rewards it with eternal life. But there is a condition. We must seek a certain type of glory. We're to hunger, crave, earnestly desire to be ambitious for the glory that comes from God. Church, I would come to you today and I would ask you this question. What are you chasing? Are you chasing the applause of men? Are you chasing something else that is less than glorious than the glory of God alone that we see in the person Jesus Christ? Are you spending your life pouring it out, chasing this, this bogus glory, this counterfeit glory? Or will you come before the one who alone is glorious and realize the gift that you have been given through his sacrifice and spend the rest of your life pouring it out, not to earn his favor, but pouring it out because you have his favor. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to this point in our service and God we pray Lord that you would deliver us from ourselves God I pray that in this room with these people who are seated here God that you would help us to see your glory that we would come to the place like Isaiah where we would see your glory we would respond with woe is me For I am a man of unclean lips. God, I pray that you would convict, that you would convert here today. That you would conform us to the image of Christ. God, that you would become our all-consuming passion. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.